Concluding Dissertation, Section 148 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Concluding Dissertation, The Dogmatic Import of the Life of Jesus. Section 148, The Eclectic Christology of Schleiermacher. It is the effort of this theologian to avoid both these ungrateful results, and without prejudice to the faith, to form such a conception of the doctrine of the Christ as may be proof against the attacks of science. On the one hand, he has adopted in its fullest extent the negative criticism directed by rationalism against the doctrine of the church. Nay, he has rendered it even more searching. On the other hand, he has sought to retain what rationalism had lost, the essential part of positive Christianity, and thus he has saved many in these days from the narrowness of supranaturalism and the emptiness of rationalism. This simplification of the faith Schleiermacher effects in the following manner. He does not set out with the Protestant from the doctrine of Scripture, nor with the Catholic from the decision of the church for in both these ways he would have to deal with a precise developed system which having originated in remote centuries must come into collision with the science of the present day but he sets out from the consciousness of the christian from that internal experience resulting to the individual from his connection with the christian community and he thus obtains a material which, as its basis is feeling, is more flexible, and to which it is easier to give dialectically a form that satisfies science. As a member of the Christian Church, this is a point of departure in the Christology of Schleiermacher, I am conscious of the removal of my sinfulness and the impartation of absolute perfection. In other words, in communion with the church, I feel operating upon me the influence of a sinless and perfect principle. This influence cannot proceed from the Christian community as an effect of the reciprocal action of its members on each other. For to every one of these, sin and imperfection are inherent and the cooperation of impure beings can never produce anything pure as its result. It must be the influence of one who possessed that sinlessness and perfection as personal qualities, and who, moreover, stands in such a relation to the Christian community that he can impart these qualities to its members, that is, since the Christian church could not exist prior to this impartation, it must be the influence of its founder. As Christians, we find something operated within us. Hence, as from every effect we argue to its cause, we infer the influence of Christ, and from this again the nature of his person, which must have had the powers necessary to the exertion of this influence. To speak more closely, that which we experience as members of the christian church is a strengthening of our consciousness of god in its relation to our sensuous existence that is 
it is rendered easier to us to deprive the senses of their ascendancy within us, to make all our impressions the servants of the religious sentiment, and all our actions its offspring. According to what has been stated above, this is the effect wrought in us by Christ, who imparts to us the strength of his consciousness of God, frees us from the bondage of sensuality and sin, and is thus the Redeemer. In the feeling of the strengthened consciousness of God, which the Christian possesses by his communion with the Redeemer, the obstructions of his natural and social life are not felt as obstructions by his consciousness of God. They do not interrupt the blessedness which he enjoys in his inmost religious life. What has been called evil, the divine chastisement, is not such for him. And as it is Christ, who, by receiving him into the communion of his blessedness, frees him therefrom, the office of expiation is united to that of redemption. In this sense alone is the doctrine of the church concerning the threefold office of Christ to be interpreted. He is a prophet, in that by the word, by the setting forth of himself, and not otherwise, he could draw mankind towards himself, and therefore the chief object of his doctrine was his own person. He is at once a high priest and a sacrifice, in that he, the sinless one, from whose existence therefore no evil could be evolved, entered into communion with the life of sinful humanity, and endured the evils which adhere to it, that he might take us into communion with his sinless and blessed life, in other words, deliver us from the power and consequences of sin and evil, and present us pure before God. Lastly, he is a king, in that he brings these blessings to mankind in the form of an organized society, of which he is the head. From this which Christ effects, we gather what he is, if we owe to him the continual strengthening of the consciousness of God within us, this consciousness must have existed in him in absolute strength, so that it, or God in the form of the consciousness, was the only operative force within him. And this is the sense of the expression of the church, God became man in Christ. If, further, Christ works in us a more and more complete conquest over sensuality, in himself there must have been an absolute conquest over it. In no moment of his life can the sensual consciousness have disputed the victory with his consciousness of God. Never can a vacillation or struggle have had place within him. In other words, the human nature in him was sinless and in the stricter sense, that, in virtue of the essential predominance within him of the higher powers over the lower, it was impossible for him to sin. By this peculiarity of his nature, he is the archetype, the actualization of the ideal of humanity, which his church can only approach, never surpass. Yet must he, for otherwise there could be no true fellowship between him and us, 
have been developed under the ordinary conditions of human life the ideal must in him have been perfectly historical each phasis of his actual life must have borne the impress of the ideal and this is the proper sense of the church formula that the divine and human nature were in him united into one person only thus far can the doctrine of the christ be deduced from the experience of the christian and thus far according to schleiermacher it is not opposed to science whatever in the dogma of the church goes beyond this as for example the supernatural conception of jesus and his miracles also the facts of the resurrection and ascension and the prophecies of his second coming to judge the world ought not to be brought forward as integral parts of the doctrine of the christ for he from whose influence upon us comes all the strengthening of our consciousness of god may have been the christ though he should not have risen bodily from the dead and ascended into heaven etc so that we believe these facts not because they are involved in our internal experience but only because they are stated in scripture not so much therefore in a religious and dogmatical as in an historical manner this christology is undeniably a beautiful effort of thought and as we shall presently see does the utmost towards the rendering the union of the divine and the human in christ conceivable but if its author supposed that he kept the faith unmutilated and science unoffended we are compelled to pronounce that he was in both points deceived science opens its attack on the proposition that the ideal man was historically manifested in the person of christ it did not escape schleiermacher himself that this was a dangerous point no sooner has he put forth the above proposition than he reflects on the difficulty of supposing that the ideal should be realized in one historical individual since in other cases we never find the ideal realized in a single appearance but only in an entire cycle of appearances which reciprocally complete each other it is true that this theologian does not hold the character of christ as the ideal man to extend to the manifold relations of human life so as to be the archetype for all the science art and policy that are developed in human society he confines it to the domain of the consciousness of god but as schmid has justly observed this does not alter the case for the consciousness of god also being in its development and manifestation subject to the conditions of finiteness and imperfection the supposition that even in this department exclusively the ideal was manifested in a single historical individual involves a violation of the laws of nature by a miracle this however is far from alarming schleiermacher on the contrary he maintains that this is the place and the only place in which the christian doctrine must necessarily admit a miracle 
since the originating of the person of christ can only be conceived as the result of a special divine act of creation it is true he limits the miraculous to the first introduction of christ into the series of existences and allows the whole of his further development to have been subject to all the conditions of finite existence but this concession cannot repair the breach which the supposition only of one miracle makes in the scientific theory of the world still less can any help be derived from vague analogies like the following as it is still possible that matter should begin to agglomerate and thence to revolve in infinite space so science must admit that there may be in the domain of spiritual life an appearance which in like manner we can only explain as the commencement the first point in a higher process of development this comparison suggests the observation made by branus namely that it would be contrary to the laws of all development to regard the initial member of a series as the greatest to suppose that in christ the founder of that community the object of which is the strengthening of the consciousness of god the strength of this consciousness was absolute a perfection which is rather the infinitely distant goal of the progressive development of the community founded by him schleiermacher does indeed attribute to christianity perfectibility in a certain sense not as a capability of surpassing christ in his nature but solely in the conditions of its manifestation his view is this the limitation the imperfection of the relations of christ the language in which he expressed himself the nationality within which he was placed modified his thoughts and actions but in their form alone their essence remained nevertheless the perfect ideal now if christianity in its progressive advancement in doctrine and practice rejects more and more of these temporal and national limitations by which the actions and teaching of jesus were circumscribed this is not to surpass christ it is rather to give a more perfect expression of his inner life but as schmid has satisfactorily shown an historical individual is that which appears of him and no more his internal nature is known by his words and actions the condition of his age and nation are a part of his individuality and what lies beneath this phenomenal existence as the essence is not the nature of this individual but the human nature in general which in particular beings operates only under the limitations of their individuality of time and of circumstances thus to surpass the historical appearance of christ is to rise nearer not to his nature but to the idea of humanity in general and if we are to suppose that it is still christ whose nature is more truly expressed when with the rejection of the temporal and national the essential elements of his doctrine and life are further developed it would not be difficult by a similar abstraction 
to represent Socrates as the one who in this manner cannot be surpassed. As neither an individual in general nor in particular, the commencing point in an historical series, can present the perfect ideal, so if Christ be regarded decidedly as man, the archetypal nature and development which Schleiermacher ascribes to him cannot be brought to accord with the laws of human existence. Impeccability, in the sense of the impossibility of sinning, as it is supposed to exist in Christ, is a quality totally incompatible with the human nature. For to man, in consequence of his agency being liable to guidance by the motives of the senses as well as of the reason, the possibility of sinning is essential. And if Christ was entirely free from inward conflict, from all vacillation of the spiritual life between good and evil, he could not be a man of like nature with us. For the action and reaction between the spiritual nature in general and the external world, and in particular between the superior religious and moral powers, and the operations of the mind in subordination to the senses, necessarily manifests itself as a conflict. If, on the one side, the Christology in question is far from satisfying science, it is equally far, on the other side, from satisfying the faith. We will not enter into those points in which, instead of the decisions of the church, it at least offers acceptable substitutes, concerning which, however, it may be doubted whether they are a full compensation. Its disagreement with the faith is the most conspicuous in the position that the facts of the resurrection and ascension do not form essential parts of the Christian faith. For the belief in the resurrection of Christ is the foundation stone, without which the Christian church could not have been built. Nor could the cycle of Christian festivals, which are the external representation of the Christian faith, now suffer a more fatal mutilation than by the removal of the festival of Easter. The Christ who died could not be what he is in the belief of the church, if he were not also the Christ who rose again. Thus, the doctrine of Schleiermacher concerning the person and conditions of Christ betrays a twofold inadequacy, not meeting the requirements either of the faith of the church or of science. It is clear, however, from his doctrine of the work of Christ, that in order to satisfy the former, so far as is here done, such a contradiction of the latter was quite unnecessary, and an easier course might have been pursued. For resting merely on a backward inference from the inward experience of the Christian as the effect to the person of Christ as the cause, the Christology of Schleiermacher has but a frail support since it cannot be proved that the inward experience is not to be explained without the actual existence of such a Christ. Schleiermacher himself did not overlook the probable objection that the church, induced merely by the relative excellence of Jesus, 
conceived an ideal of absolute perfection and transferred this to the historical christ from which combination she continually strengthens and vivifies her consciousness of god but he held this objection to be precluded by the observation that sinful humanity by reason of the mutual dependence of the will and the understanding is incapable of conceiving an immaculate ideal but as it has been aptly remarked if schleiermacher claims a miracle for the origination of his real christ we have an equal right to claim one for the origination of the ideal of a christ in the human soul meanwhile it is not true that sinful human nature is incapable of conceiving a sinless ideal if by this ideal be understood merely a general conception then the conception of the perfect and the sinless is as necessarily co-existent with the consciousness of imperfection and sinfulness as the conception of infinity with that of finiteness since the two ideas conditionate one another and the one is not possible without the other if on the other hand by this ideal be meant a concrete image the conception of a character in which all the individual features are portrayed it may be admitted that a sinful individual or age cannot depict such an image without blemish but of this inability the age or individual itself is not conscious not having any superior standard and if the image be but slightly drawn if it leave room for the modifications of increased enlightenment it may continue to be regarded as immaculate even by a later and more clear-sighted age so long as this age is inclined to view it under the most favourable light we may now estimate the truth of the reproach which made schleiermacher so indignant namely that his was not an historical but an ideal christ it is unjust in relation to the opinion of schleiermacher for he firmly believed that the christ as construed by him really lived but it is just in relation to the historical state of the facts because such a christ never existed but in idea and in this sense indeed the reproach has even a stronger bearing on the system of the church because the christ therein presented can still less have existed lastly it is just in relation to the consequence of schleiermacher's system since to effect what schleiermacher makes him effect no other christ is necessary and according to the principles of schleiermacher respecting the relation of god to the world of the supernatural to the natural no other christ is possible than an ideal one and in this sense the reproach attaches specifically to schleiermacher's doctrine for according to the premises of the orthodox doctrine an historical christ is both possible and necessary end of section 148